You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Thanks for joining our podcast. I'm Daryl West, Vice President of Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution and co-author with Brookings President John Allen of a book about AI entitled Turning Point, Policymaking in the Era of Artificial Intelligence. We live in a time of digital transformation. Technology is altering how we work, learn, and get public services. At the same time, there are shifts taking place in the workforce as people are having to navigate complexities in information technology, human resources, and social service delivery. This especially has been the case during the COVID pandemic. The government enacted a relief package designed to help people cope with the illness and the resulting economic downturn. But a number of states had inadequate unemployment insurance programs and needy people did not get the help they required. To help us understand these challenges, today we are pleased to be joined by a distinguished expert. Annalise Goger is the David Rubenstein Fellow in Metropolitan Policy at Brookings, where she focuses on workforce, digital change, and economic development. She is an economic geographer who develops solutions to rising inequality and ways to improve economic opportunity. She is co-author of a new paper entitled Digital Transformation in Labor and Education Systems, Improving the Government Response to the Next Unemployment Crisis. It looks at unemployment insurance systems and how many of them broke down during the pandemic just when people needed the benefits. Annalise, welcome to our Tech Tank podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be on here. Before we get into your paper, I would like our audience to learn a little bit more about your background. So you were a first-generation college student who got your BA at Brandeis and then went on to a master's at Berkeley and a PhD at the University of North Carolina. Before coming to Brookings, you conducted field research at Social Policy Research Associates and Impact International. So I'm curious how your background as a first-generation college student has affected your thinking about workforce development and economic opportunity. How has it influenced what you study and how you work on these subjects? The biggest influence that my upbringing has had on my thinking and my approach to research is basically the idea that when you don't have people in your network who have been through a given training program or educational experience or even that work in a specific industry, you lack access to information. And that lack of access to information is really makes it hard for you to understand how to navigate getting into something that you're trying to do if you're trying to try it a new field or get a college degree when no one in your family has. You don't know how to do the application. You don't understand how the SATs may work. There are a lot of insider tricks parents and other people tend to pass on to their children. And when you don't have that in your network, it really puts you at a huge disadvantage. And so I've gone into my research with a pretty good understanding of that, given my own background. And so it's really shaped my decision, for example, to focus on qualitative research, where you really get proximate to the people that you're studying and the environment and the context 
to really understand how specific things play out in that context and what it means for people there. And so when I apply that to government services, it means really understanding how we create our policies with buckets like, oh, you're a person with a disability or you are a veteran. But what if you're both? If you really understand that user journey, I think it gives you a much broader sense of how people actually live and what would be helpful for them rather than treating all veterans the same, even if they have other things about their life or their situation that makes it like you need a a little bit more of an understanding of how they have to juggle different things oftentimes and not just the one category that you put them in. Uh, I can certainly appreciate that because I grew up on a dairy farm in rural Ohio. I also was a first-generation college student and basically experienced the same thing that you did. It's You really need mentoring on how to figure things out, how the system uh, operates, and the insights from my background have affected how I view economic opportunity. And I can certainly understand how uh, that has shaped your view, especially on uh, these important issues related to unemployment insurance. So you have a new paper out on digital transformation in labor and education systems. And it is a terrific paper. I highly recommend it to our listeners. So they can actually find it at brookings.edu. Now, the paper is based on roundtables that you organize with local workforce development leaders and state data experts. Why did you organize these roundtables and what kinds of questions did you try to get answered? We convene a group of Innovative Workforce Board leaders monthly since the pandemic, virtually. And one of the things that this network of people has consistently raised almost every meeting is how much time they spend collecting data for compliance purposes to submit to their state or the federal government, and yet how little data they have access to to actually make the decisions they need to help people, whether that's people looking for a job, people looking for a training opportunity, or employers that they're trying to work with to help them find a good fit for job candidates. They generally don't have a lot of access to disaggregated information for their region or by industry or occupation. And that lack of access to the data, even though they spend sometimes 30 to 50% of their time gathering it and entering it, because the systems are so old, they have to enter it multiple times in different systems. They never really get a lot of access to it with a few exceptions. And so after hearing that again, again, you know, we decided at Brookings Metro that we thought it would be worthwhile, given the current debates about unemployment insurance and how much actually those unemployment insurance data systems impact the way that that these job services happen on the ground, but all these other systems that it's interconnected with, we felt like that wasn't part of the debate. And it might be worthwhile to, to gather people from these different levels of government and people in civic technology that have been innovating in this space together for a roundtable to really get their perspective on what is a a big overarching vision that people on the Hill, people in Congress, and people at the state level that are, you know, leading modernization efforts or digital transformation efforts, what would be helpful for them to know in terms of how to think about the whole ecosystem and not just narrowly about one piece of that ecosystem? Your paper describes our unemployment insurance system as, quote, nationally uneven and under-resourced, end quote. Tell us about those problems. The unemployment insurance system was actually created in the 1930s after the Great Depression to be a safety net, and mostly at that time for displaced manufacturing workers who were going through cycles of unemployment. But a lot of workers were actually excluded from that process. So agricultural workers and people who generally who don't 
have a certain earnings level, like low-wage workers in many cases, and people who have contract jobs, which really didn't exist much at the time, but now they are obviously a a huge share of of the labor force. So there are whole categories of people that are not covered in unemployment insurance still to this day. And that's one of the ways it's, it's uneven. Another way that it's uneven since the 30s, it's been state and federal administered, but over time, the states have become much more, they've taken a lot more authority to customize their rules and regulations. And oftentimes that's been because after a major crisis like the Great Recession, their trust funds were very low. And so they had to find some way to replenish them. Either they can raise taxes on employers, which oftentimes is politically challenging, or they can cut benefits in some way, either by cutting the amounts or cutting the durations, et cetera. So right now we have this very different system from state to state where you have, for example, in Massachusetts, the average benefit is around $473 a week for regular unemployment insurance. And then for Louisiana, it's around 192. And there are also huge racial disparities in who accesses the benefits. So many states have put their systems online, but they have these separate custom systems and some are better than others. And that the states that have higher shares of black workers actually have uh, lower levels of recipiency for black workers. So there's a lot of racial disparity in who accesses these benefits. The final point I want to make is you asked about under-resourced. Many people think, oh, maybe this crisis is just because of the pandemic, but actually these systems have been seen declining funding in over the last 30 or 40 years. In the 90s, a lot of programs were devolved to the states. And so what we have, instead of having some similarity across these systems, we have is a custom, often like even an off-the-shelf custom system, off-the-shelf product that was customized for a given state that can't be shared with another state, which would give you an economy of scale because it's so different in each state. And that is really inefficient, I think, because we're throwing millions and millions of dollars into these separate systems, even though they're doing a lot of the same things. So you note that over the years, unemployment programs have been plagued by outmoded legacy systems and cuts in technology staffing. How have these issues hampered service delivery? The states have a lot of control over how they set their benefit levels, their durations, and who qualifies for unemployment insurance. What you'll see is in some states, I think the most egregious example would be Florida. They actually designed the system to be hard to access the benefits when they contracted with Deloitte to build a wholesale system. And the current governor has blamed the previous administration for that, but he basically admitted that they did that. And likewise, even in states that weren't intentionally trying to keep people out, they're dealing with 40-year-old systems. So New Jersey's governor, for example, called for COBRAL programmers, which is an older programming language, because their system requires people that are fluent in that programming language to, to help reprogram it to adapt to the new programs that the Congress passed for the CARES Act and also to handle the increased load that they were getting from the pandemic. And so each state doesn't have enough resources really to keep their own separate system up to date. And then when you have this huge surge in in people when the lockdowns ensued, they were actually at uh, historically low staffing levels. This was a recipe for just those systems to be in total chaos. And when you add the three new programs that Congress created and the need to program those, it just added more stress. And so states were trying to juggle all these things at one time. 
And what ended up happening was that people weren't getting their benefits for, in some cases, months. One of the baristas that I interviewed in the spring, she ended up waiting 12 weeks because the person on the phone, which she had waited six and a half hours on the phone to talk to somebody, she finally got there. They spelled her name wrong. And that name spelling triggered the fraud process to go into place. So she got in line behind thousands and thousands of other people, and it took months for them to process her benefits. And so this is this hobbled infrastructure is just really not set up well to be responsive in a crisis. And I think that's what I think one thing that I tried to do in this paper is set up what would we need in place from an infrastructure point of view, but also from a data structure point of view to actually be able to respond more quickly in a crisis and do things, not take months to implement a new program, have something set up where it's not so difficult to update it and change it when you need to. I certainly heard many complaints very similar to what you just talked about of complicated computer systems. It was hard for people to figure out how to actually apply for the benefits. They would call and be on hold for hours and hours. So certainly a huge IT system problems right there. Another problem is that gig workers and self-employed individuals are not included in unemployment insurance wage records. Why is that the case and how does that create problems? Unemployment insurance was created in the 30s. And at the time, they really only designed the safety net for waged workers that work a certain number of hours every week. And so even from the beginning, if you worked part-time, you probably wouldn't qualify for unemployment insurance. This is exactly why Congress had to pass those three new programs in the CARES Act, because the people that were impacted by the lockdowns often were restaurant workers or hotel workers or people working part-time because they have children at home. And all of a sudden, they lost their jobs, but they wouldn't be covered in regular unemployment insurance. There's a level at which just generally low-income workers and part-time workers wouldn't be covered. But also, if you are, if you get a 1099, let's say you're a freelancer or a gig worker, or you're in agriculture, or you're a federal employee, all these different categories of workers are not covered under UI. And so Congress had to create the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Program, a, whole, a totally new program to cover those people. Because if you're a musician, that's how you get your income and you would have no safety net in this pandemic. And so that created problems because all of a sudden states, as I said before, dealing with these old systems, also unprecedented surges of people coming at them, had to create a whole new infrastructure and stand up an application process to make sure that those who were applying for the pandemic unemployment assistance program were rightfully entitled to those benefits. And that's where actually a lot of the fraud came in. It's pretty horrifying, actually, how much fraud happened. And a lot of it's because they didn't have full-on verification set up. There's no way to track people's wages. And there's an issue there just with equity in terms of being able to give people what they are entitled to in an efficient and an equitable way simply because you don't have the infrastructure in place. There's also an issue because all the job career services that we have in job centers, the training programs we offer through the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act, all of those programs verify your income when you know to be eligible for the program, but also use the earnings and income data from UI, from unemployment insurance, to see if you got a job and how much you earned. So what that means for the person who's unemployed is, if they're not counted in that UI wage record, the job center's not going to get credit for serving you. There's actually a built-in disincentive 
to, to give people services, to enroll them in programs simply because of the way that they earn their income. And if you think about our workforce system and our policy, a lot of it is serving people who are low-wage workers, but there's a structural systemic disincentive to serve exactly that population. And so I think this has huge implications for equity in terms of people getting access to services, but also things like getting access to a mortgage loan. If you can't show that you earned a certain amount, it can be really challenging and impede people's ability to get access to the kinds of support that people who have full-time waged jobs get. And I think a lot of times policymakers, since they are full-time wage workers, they don't understand all that people with more unstable income sources really struggle to interact with a lot of these systems. And I wanted to pull that out as a lot of people talked about the delivery aspect, but there's also the service access equity problem that I wanted to pull out in this report. I certainly think one of the strengths of the paper is you did an outstanding job outlining the scope of the problems of the IT uh, system issues, the problems people had accessing the systems, and then some of the wage record questions that we just uh, talked about. But the other thing you do in the paper, which I think should be of great interest to people, is how can we do a better job in this area? You mentioned a number of different improvements that you think would make a difference, uh, things such as having national data standards so these systems can operate more effectively, developing what you call agile software, having a better use of data analytics. How would these steps improve our current system of unemployment insurance? I actually think they would go way beyond improving unemployment insurance. I think they would actually improve the information we have about our labor market in general. For example, right now, everyone's like, do we have a labor shortage or don't we have a labor shortage? We would be able to know because right now, when we gather information for unemployment insurance wage records, which is one of the main sources of labor market information we have, other than taxes, which comes every year, it takes a while to clean it and process it and then release it. That usually takes six to nine months. So we have to wait six to nine months just to know what's going on in the labor market. There's a problem there for the general public. There's a problem there for the employer because different states collect the data differently. And this gets to the data standards question. So if you're in one state, they collect, let's say, the name field or the address field or the income field differently than in another state. And so if you're an employer and you have to like customize how you're reporting the stuff in each state that you're operating in, it takes a lot to do that. And you have to many times do that manually. There's no way to automate that from payroll. There is ability to do that, but many states don't have that. So what I'm arguing for, first of all, is let's not only make it easier for employers to report this from payroll, but let's do it more frequently so we can get more data, better quality data more often about what's happening in the labor market. And that's the foundation. And then if you have them reporting these data in a similar way, that builds a foundation for having interlinking data in an automated fashion across states, across programs. There's a lot of talk in the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act about integrated service delivery, but you can't integrate services well across programs. If you have to collect the race data differently in one and then the other, you can't easily figure out how to link the data. And that means that that one program has to collect someone's race in their intake form, and then you have to collect it in a different way, slightly different way, 
on another intake form. So you're having people fill out the same information like 20 different times if they're in different programs. And that creates a huge burden and barrier, especially on the most vulnerable workers. So let's say you're coming out of incarceration and you're applying for health insurance, you're applying for food stamps or SNAP, it's called. You're applying for some career services to find a job. You're applying for some housing assistance. You're going to have to fill out form after form after form after form, like with the same information multiple times. If we had data standards where different programs and agencies collect some basic demographic info, barriers to employment information the same way, then you know, you wouldn't have to put the user through that burden. It would be done just once and you ask their permission to share and then they have the option to share. You could also implement more ownership rights so people have that authority, you know, individually they can decide, do I want to share my program so I don't have to re-enter this or do I want to keep it and, and, and not have my data shared? We could empower people for, to, to be able to make that decision themselves if we design this at a systems level. And so I think that... Um, while it sounds super technical and wonky to talk about data systems and data standards, this is such a huge issue for even for especially the most vulnerable people to make programs easier to access. If someone consents to share, for example, then the person working with them can see, okay, actually, given what you entered, you're eligible for these five other things that the person might not have known that they were eligible for. And right now, what's happening is each program's collecting its own separate data and entering it in many times in multiple systems. It takes hours for the staff to enter it. It takes hours for the state level staff to validate these different data elements when they're collected differently. It just multiplies the amount of effort administratively for everyone down the chain when at the federal level, we don't have just some basic standards around, okay, we all collect names this way. And I feel like that should be a common sense thing that we do in this day and age. Certainly, the lack of consistency in how the data are compiled and how they're entered hampers the way the system operates. As you mentioned, creates a lot of inequities. And this is a very practical solution that would actually make a big difference. You also, in your paper, suggest that cross-state collaborations or regional approaches might improve the way this whole system functions. How would these uh, collaborations uh, take place and how would this improve service delivery if they were implemented? One that we profile in the report is called the Midwest Collaborative. I think cross-state solutions are something states could do without federal action. Ideally, you would have national collaboration across states. The data element standardization is one piece, but having something like a, a data trust where you could get earnings and income data and demographic data from different sources and it goes into a trust and then you can have different cascading permissions so that if we're a local board member and your question is, how can I serve this person better? What types of jobs are available in my region that meet these criteria? You could have access to those data, but you wouldn't necessarily need to know any kind of private or personal information. You're just trying to get it at an aggregation level that's relevant for your question. Likewise, at the state level, you could you might want to say, hey, I really want to target small employers that have been impacted by the pandemic in a particular industry, let's say hospitality. Who do I know from what the data intelligence that I have, the data I have, who am I trying to reach and how can I target messaging for those employers? Right now, we don't have the capability in most states to do that. I think when you make these standardizations of data elements and sharing 
infrastructure possible across states, especially in a place like D.C., where we live, in St. Louis or Minneapolis, where you have different municipalities right next to each other. Data sharing could be more standardized if labor markets are moving across municipalities, across states, across regions. You could actually monitor those patterns much more easily than Virginia and Maryland collect these data differently, and then you can't even tell what's happening. And so right now, we don't have that capability, both geographically in a region, but also from the Fed to the state to the local and back up again. All that is really right now, it's all geared towards just feeding data up for compliance purposes. And there are many other uses for the data that we're just not able to take advantage of because it's so different everywhere. Those are all great points. Just the importance of the economy of scale, like every state and some municipalities are basically having to reinvent the wheel. They don't have the resources to do it. And then they devise systems that don't work very well. Certainly having cross-state or regional approaches would create greater economies of scale, would save money, and the system likely would function better. Another problem that you discuss is the question of government procurement, which is basically referring to how governments purchase products and services. So what are the challenges in this area and how can we improve this process? Procurement is another one where it sounds really wonky and people tune out, but actually has huge implications because a lot of people are concerned right now about data privacy, about ownership, the ability to make for nuanced decisions about when and who with whom you want to share your data. And this is really critical, this procurement question. And the way I would think about it is traditionally what would happen is a state would build its own internal system for people to apply for a program. They would operate it internally. But eventually what happened was states didn't have the expertise in-house and they didn't have the resources to maintain it themselves internally. So in a lot of states, what they started to do as a solution is contract that system building wholly out. So you're basically going to a Deloitte or an IBM or a Tata, and you're saying, hey, build this system for me to do a job matching platform or whatever it is, or intake for career services case management system. So they would contract the entire system out from start to finish, from end to end, And they would have a lot of requirements up front. And then it's called waterfall software development. And then you build it in a linear fashion. At the end, you might do a little bit of user testing, but it's not very much. Contrast that with how most product development happens currently in the private tech sector. And it's really not like that at all. User input is generally considered iteratively in many stages of a product. And it's built into smaller development cycles that have that are more simple. So you tackle one element or one problem at a time. And then once you get that working and you test it with a lot of people, then you step on, you add to the next one. So that's called agile software development. And most states are not really set up for agile. They're set up for waterfall in terms of how they issue RFPs. It can be challenging for them because when you do agile, you actually need your internal staff to know a little bit more about like technology and you need to have in staff technology staff who are who are 
more sophisticated and who are paid at a competitive rate that they could get in the private sector in in order to keep them. And most states just really don't have the resources for that. And what happens when you do the waterfall style is oftentimes it will take years for that system to be built. And then it comes back and people try to use it and it collapses or it has lots of glitches or it doesn't really work very well. And once a vendor like that gets a contract and they spend years building that platform, there's really not much incentive for them to improve it or to keep it competitive or to keep it innovative because you're locked in. You've already sunk in those many years of having them build that custom system. So it creates this sort of relationship with the private sector vendors where you get locked in and dependent on them to make changes. Whereas if you do the Agile where you're really controlling the the system and owning the system internally, but you might procure out specific elements or specific services with smaller chunks of it over time. And then you can always sort of change that specific element if you want. It gives states more flexibility. And so what we're arguing in the report is that we need to really change how states procure, how the federal government funds states in terms of their internal capacity staffing-wise to make sure that that's actually an option for states so that they don't they can build these living systems that change over time and not necessarily just have these one-off, I'm going to contract for this product, it comes back, and that's done. That That is how we got where we are in many states, is just with these systems that aren't really designed for user purposes. And there's actually one more point I want to make, which I think is really interesting, and that is that actually it's illegal um, for a state or the contractor working for the state, let's say the IBM or the Deloitte, it's illegal for them to get more than nine interviews from users as they build the system without going through an official OMB approval process, Office of Management and Budget Approval Process. So think about what that means to getting more user input. So if you're going to get OMB approval, it takes about a year. So you're building a system and you want to get a lot of feedback. Let's say you want to interview someone with a disability. You want to interview somebody who's younger, who's older, et cetera. You can only do nine. If you can't do the nine, if you want to do more than nine, you have to wait a year. So that is a law that is from the Paperwork Reduction Act of 1995. It happened, it came out before really the internet was a thing. And yet it's really limiting the amount of user input that legally can happen without going through that long process. So that's one of the policy barriers that I pull out in the report that I think is important for people to know about in terms of if you really want to get more user input, Congress has to reconsider that type of rule because you need more input from users than nine interviews. That is actually shocking that we have that kind of limitation. Obviously, the people who developed the Paperwork Reduction Act were not aware of the concept of crowdsourcing and getting feedback and using user experiences to improve the way in which your system functions. So one last question for you. Are there lessons we can learn from other countries? In your paper, you talk a little bit about the United Kingdom, South Korea, Estonia. What are some of these other countries doing that might inform what is happening in the United States? One of the things that the UK is doing that I think we've started to learn from is the use of a digital service. So now we have cloud-based services. You could, in theory, create one intake form that becomes available in the cloud as a template that each state can then borrow and integrate into their system. 
you can make sure that intake form has been tested with a lot of different users. It meets all the legal requirements. It's easy for people to understand. And it has people with disabilities can read it. We can make it go through all the checks. And then each state could use it. And that's called software as a service. When you distribute software through the cloud as a service, that's what a digital service can set up things like that at a federal level and then ship it off to states. And they can basically build that template into their system. So even though they maintain administration of the data they have, they're building on this form. But we can't do that because of the data being so different across states. That's one example of what a digital service could do that would make a huge difference for the average user to be able to read a form and not be like, what does this question mean? (laughs) It's legalese. I can't understand this question. We could really have lots of economies of scale. The way that we've used digital service is mostly through government agencies like AT&F and the US Digital Service, which is modeled off of the UK model. And way we've engaged them is mainly in emergencies. So when the healthcare exchanges failed, we sent experts in to help get into the trenches to help figure that out. When the unemployment insurance crashed, many people in the civic tech and ATNF and US Digital Service went through and helped states figure out how to solve this problem. But I think we can go way beyond just emergency and think about ways of what is it, what are the elements of these different programs and services that we could scale and save a lot of time and effort getting duplicated 53 times. So 50 50 states, District of Columbia, and, and the territories of Puerto Rico and Virgin Islands. So how do you avoid just like duplicating all this effort 53 times. I think one of the ways is through software as a service, which would require a a digital service like the UK has. The second option, Estonia is mentioned in the report, they've done a lot to really make government services really accessible for everyone and anything from voting to applying for any kinds of government benefits. They're leading the world in terms of being able to set up a structure on the back end to link data. This different systems actually talk to each other. And South Korea is leading the way in terms of capturing data on labor market information in ways that you can actually see trends in occupation, how much are employers training their own workforce. There's a lot of data we don't collect right now in our labor market information that South Korea is collecting. And I think there's ways that we could look at that and see how they're using artificial intelligence. I think we we also need to think through the governance of artificial intelligence and security and ethical issues. But assuming we can think through some of that governance structure, I think that there's a lot of potential when you do have platform level data to use AI and to actually do some of the analysis that would now take many people many years that states just don't have the resources to do that would actually be helpful for people. I think there are opportunities there that we're not looking at that we could learn from countries like that. I want to thank Annalise for sharing her thoughts with us about unemployment insurance and ways to improve the way the system operates. It's a tremendous paper, highly recommended. She writes regularly on the Brookings website, and you can find her work at brookings.edu. So thanks for tuning in. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast. And sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.